Welcome to the MFP Live podcast. I'm producer Courtney Monkier. On this episode of MFP Live, publisher Kimberly Griffin and editor Donna Lass speak with Orisa Napper-Williams. After losing her son to gun violence, the Brooklyn, New York native founded the nonprofit organization Not Another Child, based in New York City. She talked about how starting her nonprofit in 2007 not only serves as a way for her to help grieve over the loss of her son, but also as a way to help other families and especially mothers who have experienced similar tragedies. In her work, she helps family members who have lost loved ones to gun violence get the respect and the attention they deserve from police and other officials. Orisa also talks about how her nonprofit provides multi-step solutions on curbing gun violence in New York City that can be replicated in Mississippi and other places. Here's Donna. I met Orisa a few years ago. I was trying to think exactly when I think I know. Bottom line is that I have been doing a series of stories for The Guardian and really kind of emerging myself, immersing myself into uh, violence prevention efforts in New York City to kind of try to understand, you know, how cities and uh, experts are approaching um, violence prevention, particularly gun violence, and especially in Black communities. Where, where the violence is disproportionate. I met Arisa originally because the NYPD sent me to her. Mm-hmm. Remember that, Susan Herman yes. at the yes. NYPD I interviewed. And at the time, Susan Herman, who's, who's kind of an expert in victims um, issues, among other things. But I think she was the head of, she was the deputy commissioner of collaborative mm-hmm. policing at the time, right, at NYPD. Mm-hmm. And she was telling me after my, I think my first interview with her, she said, you know, you have to get in touch with this mother from Brooklyn who is really kind of doing remarkable things around violence. And she explained to me that you had lost a child to gun violence. And anyway, I called her up and called you up. And uh, after that, it was just a whirlwind. Like every time I'd go back to New York City, <laughs> I would text Teresa and I'd say, okay, what's going on? And she'd screech her car up in front of my Airbnb and say, come on. <laughs> right? and, yes. she, and you were talking so fast and like moving so fast from thing to thing to thing that I never quite knew what we were going, where we were going because <laughs> you didn't quite take time to, to tell me, right? Do you remember this? I remember. And it was just adventure after adventure. Not, I, you know, when I say adventure, I mean intense, deep, um, thoughtful <laughs> event. No, we laughed a lot. Don't get me wrong. We, we've been to church together. We've been we to have. funerals together. We've we been went to a fake funeral, funeral together, if you recall. We went from a real funeral to a fake yes. funeral. Yes. It was a, a commercial That's that right. Man Up was doing. Yes. After An anti-violence commercial. That's right. Yes. Kimberly yes. Kimberly looked really confused about the fake funeral, but it's like. <laughs> I was anyway, like, my, was it insurance fraud? I know, right? No. No, no, no. no, no. So we may talk about that during the show because it was actually a very intense, serious thing. But it was just this. And then through doing that, and this is how I want to introduce it. And then, you know, I'm just going to wind her up and let her talk because, you know, y'all will see. Through doing this, I learned so much. And I was studying and talking to all sorts of experts other than that, John Jay College and other places. But I've never learned more 
for sure about uh, violence and anti-violence programs and the plight of victims and victims' families as I did, uh, as I have hanging out with Arisa in New York City and taking me to every part of the city and just introducing me to all sorts of people. So I have wanted to have you, as you know, I've wanted to bring you to Mississippi for a while now to talk to people here, particularly victims' families, um, and the pandemic hit and all sorts mm -hmm. of things. So mm -hmm. We finally have you is, yes. is yes. the point of my speech. And, yes. I am, I, and I personally am so thrilled to see you again because it's been way too long since yes, I haven't been back. But, but welcome, Arisa. I'm so glad Why, you're here. Thank you, Donna. Why, thank you. I am excited to be here. And this is something new. I knew of you being a writer and, you know, with the paper and everything. I love this um, stream, though, you Thank know, you. Um, this Thank platform. You. The pandemic has given us so many creative ways, it has. you know, and so I just love this platform to be able to come. And when you can't be there for a physical touch, you can at least be there physically like this. So I am glad about this opportunity. And let's go. Let's go. I know. Let's let's do this. <laughs> and uh, so. What I want you to do first is to uh, is to set the table, tell people about what got you into the uh, the anti-violence work in the first place. Give them a little mm -hmm. bit of your story, but tell people your story, uh, what happened to your son and, you know, how kind of how that got you on this journey that you're on now. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, um, you know, I have been making it a. I have been intentional with not just dwelling on the day that my son died more than all of the years of happiness that I've had. And so in telling um, the story of where I am now, I always have to go back and, and just talk a little about, you know, my son. Please. I was a single parent of two boys, Andrell and Justin, and we were three peas in a pod. You know, I had Andrell in my last year of high school. And so we kind of grew up together. He was me without hair. He was me in personality. He was me in, in love and how we embrace people. He was just me. The thing that he was most, the one of the things that he got from me that makes me somewhat regret it sometimes now is his love for family because his love for family had him in front of a building on August 7th, 2006. He had kissed me that morning. The night before August 6th, 2006, he didn't come home. I woke up that August 7th to a phone call from him. Mom, I couldn't find my keys. I didn't want to wake you up. I'll meet you in the train station in the city while you're coming in. And I got to the, our meeting point in the train station and he wasn't there. And a half hour went by. He wasn't there. 45 minutes went by and we were un I was underground. And at that time, you could not dial from underground. But for some reason or another, which I'm very grateful for, I stayed there and waited for him. Come to find out, um, he was at my cousin's house. Her daughter had gotten sick. The grandmother was coming. He didn't want to leave. You know, just different things of mm -hmm. family. But he didn't go home. He got on the train with me and he said he had made a call and he had a job interview. And we took the train down together. He went his way and I went my way once his stop got there before me. 
that night at 10.05, and this was a Monday night, and I'll never forget because Mondays was our, our chill day. It was the day for us. And where we lived in New Jersey, we used to walk down by the water and just sit there and look over into the city. And he missed dinner. And I said, okay, he's hanging out, you know, still did not know that he went to check on my cousins or our cousin. But at 10.05, when my phone rang, it was the cousin that he went to check on that had said, you know, Ron came over, they was hanging out for the day. They was at somebody's house and they came downstairs. He realized he left his phone upstairs and he went back upstairs to get his phone. And when he got upstairs, he heard the gunshots. And Andrell was the only one killed. One other person was shot. I always say he was in the line of fire. He could not run out um, from the building because they were coming in that way shooting. So he had to run in front of the bill and it tried to get into the door. And um, the person that they were actually shooting at was in front of the door. So it was one shot. It was one shot that actually five people have spent time in jail for um, so far. Um, one is still to be sentenced. That one bullet, I would say it destroyed at least five lives. Yeah. I, when I was editing um, Aaliyah's story today, it was reminding me of some of the things that you told me when we, mm -hmm. uh, we first met and you were telling me his story. But some of the things that people said to you um, as as a black mother who who mm -hmm. had who had lost her son, I would like for you to tell folks the the doctor's story real quick. Oh, and yeah. The, and the detective. Story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and it, it comes with the stigma, you know, of as soon as a black young man is is killed. You know, it's no empathy, no sensitivity. You know, I went to one hospital because they couldn't tell us what hospital, but we knew it was one of two, went to one and the officer came out and he's like, oh no, that's not your son because the mother's here, try Woodhull. So I get to Woodhull and the hospital is flooded. You know, Donna can tell you, I am a church baby, born up in it. That's just my family, you know, outside of my regular family. So the hospital is flooded with people because I come from New Jersey there. So by the time I got there, the word was out. And the doctor comes out and asked me, do you know what your son had on? So I said, yes, he had on a, a white t-shirt, but I think he had another white t-shirt in his bag or something to that effect. He says, do you know what your son was doing over here? And I started to tell him and I then I caught myself. And I, I said, wait, I'm here to find out about my son. And he looks at me and says, oh, sorry, we lost him. We couldn't save him. I think I was talking to Aaliyah, yes, about that yesterday. And the anger that rose up in me. Not that my child had, yes, that my child had died, but also the way that I was told. Like, mm -hmm. I, I will never forget that. You know, that that's just something that you'll never forget. The way you're told and just the telling at best. And so we leave there you know, my supporters, they put me in a car. I go to one of my friend's houses and I'm there and my phone rings and it's the detective. Good evening. It's Detec Detective Hennigan. You know, I'm calling. Um, I'm the detective over your son's case. I'm sorry for your loss. And I'll let you know if your son had anything to do with this. Excuse me? Oh. You let me? Excuse? Actually, you won't let me know because I don't even want to speak to you again. Didn't you hang up on him? Yes, I did. And hung mm -hmm. right up on him. Yeah. And every time he called thereafter, a family member answered. Never, never forget it. Well, and I've told you this before, but um, it's 
it's really bad right now. I mean, here mm -hmm. we're, we're going, you know, the pandemic, like a lot of cities around the country, you know, violence is up here. And so we've been doing, including Aaliyah has been doing a series of stories talking to mothers and families yeah. who've lost their kids, you know, focusing on, you know, young black men as victims, right? Mm -hmm. And this is one yeah. of the women here, um, Shanika Green, Mm -hmm. there to the to the left and so Aaliyah did this story and one of the things you'll see in the story and she's going to be in your story again too okay but, but but I've heard this over and over again the police here will not like follow up with with families like they Absolutely. won't and they can't mm -hmm. there's no mechanism for them to get information now, I say that about our, our, certainly our black families. I have a mm -hmm. feeling that some of our white families bulldog their way in there and get, you know, mm -hmm. get treated mm -hmm. differently. Absolutely. But, but you know, there, and this, uh, Shanika lost Tremaine in uh, 2020, and his body was found shot up on the side of a road. And to this day, Shanika can't get information. You know, they had changed wow. the detective, and she didn't know it. But this story is so common. And so, you know, of course I think of you because I know I've been, you know, I, you have invited me in, as you know, into support sessions and yes. with black mothers and, yes. and, and daughters and sisters. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You've had me in with mental health professionals. I mean, yeah. you know, you just treated me like your shadow there for a while. Yeah. yeah. And so I always think about, how in New York City, you took your son's death and you were inspired to start an organization, which you called mm -hmm. Not Another Child, right? Mm -hmm. And really, and correct me if I'm wrong, but that there are kind of two major things I think of you doing, doing in this organization. Mm -hmm. um, I'm sure there are many others because you're a force in nature, but one is building support organizations and mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm structure mm -hmm. for people who lose their children to gun mm -hmm. violence, mm -hmm. right? Absolutely. And the other one, the other one, the large one at least that I know about is prevention efforts for the kids and for yes. young people and those things. So what I want you to talk about first here uh, is talk about that family side of things mm -hmm. and, and kind of how you because it's obviously obvious why you wanted to make that leap after the way you were treated. But it's like, you know, what has that looked like? And I don't know, just talk more about that. So I, I think that legacy building is so important, you know, um, and I always tell families it may not be to the extent of which I do it, where it's an organization or anything like that, but just a way that you can keep your loved one's memory alive. It helps in the healing process. It helps get you through those days where you feel like they're no longer with you. You know, if you are doing something in their memory, it just helps a great deal. But you're right, Donna, even with those families, you know, helping them build their capacity. 
mm-hmm. you know, um, with what they're doing. It, it's so ironic. It's taken me a while to get there to doing that a lot more. But even just this Monday, I had about 10 parents on a call that, you know, I had them do their vision boards. I've had them do, you know, write their goals of what they want to do for this year. I have had them go through their events and what they're doing in memories. It could be anything from a balloon release to a candlelight vigil. It can be something virtual, but it could be going to their, their gravesite. You know, it can be going with me to speak to other people, but helping them to build their capacity. Because what I found that is we as women and as black women, we do this from the empathetic lens. So we're just doing it because we don't want another mother. We don't want any more members in this group, you know, so we've been doing it from that lens. Now, while that's good, it's been a hindrance when we try to get funding because we don't have data. We don't have a synopsis of what we talked about. We don't have any of that. So I've been building them and helping them build their self from the business side. I've always loved business. You know, before Ronnie would, um, got killed, I got my bachelor's of business administration. After he passed, I got my graduate degree in public administration. I've taken family development leadership credentials just to try to build my capacity so that people will not only see me as a mother that has lost a child, but also as a woman that is running an organization. And so that's what I've really, really been working with them on is that capacity building. I'm going to take you back about 10 minutes. Okay. So, so you said, when you said, you know, when your son died, not only there were five people's lives affected. Mm-hmm. Can you mm-hmm. talk about those five people? Absolutely. Absolutely. So not even 24 hours later, a young man goes into the hospital with a, a bullet wound. And so he's, they've already put out, I, I, I think it's called APB <laughs> to the hospitals. You know, if anybody comes with any, you know, bullet wounds or shooting, you know, anything like that to report it to them, which I guess they do that anyway. But this was a 15 year old young man. Come to find out he was one of the shooters. He then told of another young man that, that had recruited him and had promised him drugs and a gun. I guess to keep him on his life of crime. And so then that young man was arrested. And so it's so ironic because Donna met me through Ceasefire, which is where Commissioner Herman had us speaking, and we're still doing it, to gunmen of gangs and and crews and, you know, or whatever they call themselves. And so I'm at a ceasefire. And I tell my story and at ceasefire, you know, you have the assistant district attorney, you have one from the Supreme Court, you have someone from the U.S. district attorney's office. And so what's her name? You just said it. Oh, Susan. She comes to me and she says, Orisa, someone went from the U.S. Supreme, U.S. district attorney or whatever the feds wants to meet you. So she introduces me. So he says, what was your last name again? So I said, Napper Williams. He said, we're working on your case. I said, no, you're not working on my case because, you know, the young man that that shot my son is is locked up. You know, actually, the 15 year old only got nine years. He may be home by now. The 25 year old was just coming home from jail. So that was his third strike. He got 25 to life. And I and he says, no, 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 no. It's deeper than you think. And I said, oh, OK. And wow. I just I left it at that months. I'm sorry. Years later, I got a call. I, I kept seeing numbers come up, unknown, unknown, 
I don't answer unknown numbers, but kept coming up that morning. And then I got a text from my girlfriend and she says, did you see the paper? And I said, no. She said, I'm going to take a picture and send it to you. The paper revealed that some gang, they had a crackdown on a gang and the leader of the gang was being charged with the murder of Andrell Duran Napper, along with another young man. And the, the article went to talk about Andrell being killed August 7, 2006. They picked up someone else after the first two in 2007. And that young man has been was locked up since then. That man turned federal informant on them and brought in two others. So the last one that they had gotten because he was on the run was the actual leader of the gang never shot a, a gun never did anything all he said those young men came and said the young man you're looking for is in front of this building on Tompkins Avenue all he said was go get him and they charged him on that wow and that was he actually was found guilty um Rico charges um, Andrell's murder another murder and that was right before the pandemic that he was found guilty and they have yet to sentence him because the courts are still closed in a lot of in a lot of ways. It would have been perfect. Actually, his sentencing date was my birthday, September 17th. And they moved it to February. It should have been tomorrow, but they moved it again. Mm -hmm. So all of them have been. That's the five. And it, it does not make my heart happy. It doesn't. Mm -hmm. And I said it at the first one sentencing, like none of this can bring my child back. You know, none of it. And it hurts me that five young men, five for one bullet. And so when I say, you know, five, and then like, I even, I wanted to hug his mother because her son was killed and the young man that they were trying to kill was a retaliation for his brother. So she lost her son, both of her sons to gun violence, one to the grave and one to the jail system. So one of the things that we, and um, you know Donna's work that we've been working on is we've been doing something called Solution Circles, where we sit down mm -hmm. with the community and talk to them about solutions for the problems affecting their community. And what day is it, Donna? Oh, Tuesday night, we sat down. <laughs> we sat down um, and it was um, a talk about the uptick in violence because of mm -hmm. the pandemic. And for various different reasons. And of course, it always comes back to young people because, and my publisher's note this week is on this, um, because I think we, we think it hurts us, it wounds us when we lose young people to, just like you said, to either incarceration or loss of life. It wounds us in a, in a very profound way. We also think that that's something we can solve, that we, if we do this thing. But I do want to talk to you about solutions Mm -hmm. and things that you've seen work and things mm -hmm. you've seen that don't work mm -hmm. and things mm -hmm. you think would work. It's so funny when, when before the show started and Donna called me, all of the noise you heard was about 30 to 35 young people doing their vision boards for this year. So that is something new. We're starting with them, allowing them to write their own narrative. You know, allowing them to write what they're trying to achieve and us supporting them. You know, so many times we, you know, we want them to co-sign what we want to do for them, opposed to letting them have input on it. 
you know, right. so with writing their visions, at least they're showing us, you know, they're having input on their life, you know, not, you know, so you in 12th grade, where you going to school at? No, what do you want to do after school? You know, or do you, do? okay, you don't, you're not, you're not cut out for school. Okay. Then how else can we help you? You know, but so those are some of the things, you know, Donna knows that I work extremely close with man up. I think that partnerships are like the biggest thing since sliced bread. So we have been partners with a lot of organizations that, you know, we provide that therapeutic. It was so crazy to a young lady that's in there and she's probably like 11th or 12th grade. We, the first three stickers we gave them was name something that you want to stop doing, name something that you want to start doing. And the third was name something that you want to continue doing, but do it to another level, you know? And she, this young lady said, I like this. This is so therapeutic. And I looked at her like, anybody that knows me, like therapeutic is my thing. Like these kids in our, our communities have been traumatized. Trauma is at the beginning, the middle and the end, the layers of trauma that is on us is so heavy, you know? So I'll go back to me. So like my, the layer of my son being killed, that was just a layer on top of me being a single parent, me being a black woman, me, me just, just me having insecurities about me from things that I was told as a little girl, you know? And so these things that we're doing now with them are kind of unpeeling the layers of trauma, kind of helping them enforce who they are, you know? Yes. Kind of helping them heal. And so, you know, that's some of the things that we're doing with the youth as far as that. The biggest solution that I see, and I have been doing a lot of national work with the Black and Brown Peace Consortium, and a comprehensive approach in our communities is so needed. That comprehensive approach, what happened in New York and what makes New York like, we can't even believe the ground that we have made. Man Up went and they got the, the cure violence system from Chicago. They brought it back to New York. They did it for the year, for a year. Another organization for did it for a year where they had violence interrupters and outreach workers and they're in the streets. And, you know, these are street Incredible people. So they go where we cannot, you right. know, they interrupt violence of people where we would back up. And as right. much as we would want to enter, we would not. And they realize, though, these two components, while they are needed, while they are what the community needs, they are nothing without wrap around services. Without therapy, without professional mm -hmm. mental health services, without mm -hmm. legal aid, without those things. They're nothing because even the ones that's in the streets working it, the violence interrupters and the outreach workers being street credible, they need the services. And so we created a system called the crisis management system where first, first responders, we have it on our app. As soon as something goes off, whoever's in that area, that's who gets there. They get to the scene with the cops and everybody else. We have hospital responders that go to the hospital and meet them there that have relationships with the hospitals so that the hospitals will start throwing people out and, you know, mm -hmm. how people get in the hospitals. Mm -hmm. And so we have wellness for them. We have a chief of streets. You know, it's it's a lot. And what we've what we've also implemented is credible clinicians. Because yes, that with that therapeutic and that professional mental health services, the city tried to throw on us, okay, these people should be accredited with so-and-so-and-so, but they're not culturally competent. 
Woo. And that is what we needed. That's and so we wrote the script. Just like we have credible messengers, we want credible clinicians. And that was something that we wrote into the script as well. And so, you know, it's really, really been working. Um, De Blasio, before he left, he did set it up because, you know, the funds for it was something else. He made, I think we have about 30-something sites now across all of the boroughs from Staten Island to Queens to the Bronx mm -hmm. to Brooklyn has about 10 different sites. And now that we have um, Eric Adams as our new mayor, he's doing some phenomenal things with that as well because they see that it works where it's at. And so their thoughts are to expand the catchment areas, expand them. And so on the national level, working with Anthony from Cities United, working with um, Dr. Chico Tillman and others that go to these cities and they implement these programs and these models, I am enforcing that every city should have a survivor working hand in hand with the model because we bring a totally different present. You know, you guys are bringing one side of the gun and we're bringing the other, but you have to resolve it reaching both sides. So that's a lot of our solutions. Another thing that we've been working on that um that Eric Adams has enforced is that all of our city agencies do their part with CMS. And so we've been creating a document. What is our needs even from the sanitation department? My need is that we come together with an agreement of a specific time that you will have our baby's blood washed off of these sidewalks mm -hmm. because these parents should not have to go back to their buildings and step over their child's remains and their blood. And I had a parent right before the pandemic, her son died at the, she came out and saw her son rolling down the stairs. Two days later, she came back so that we can do a balloon release and his blood was still there. And she had to, that is compounded trauma that we are causing on people when we, it doesn't have to even be like that. And so we, we have the ability now to work with all of the city agencies, with Department of Education, with Human Resources Administration, you know, with all of them. And if anybody knows New York, we got an agency for anything. <laughs> and well, we are, we gonna work them too. Well, you know? and it is, you know, something I have talked about in recent years here a lot, partially because of all these little road trips around New York City that you took me on and all of these okay. things that I learned there is that we desperately, desperately in Jackson, and in Mississippi need system. Yes. You know, we need, we need, because Arisa, when you visit here, you'll see and talk to people, you'll see what I mean. There's just a hole in every bucket. You know, yeah. there is, yeah. there's, you know, a, a young person and, and, and you know this too, I know it's like most of the, the programs that exist for young people don't actually serve the young people at the greatest risk of committing violence and right. getting involved in retaliation cycles, which is really important thing for people to understand is how much of gun violence are retaliation cycles, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know? Exactly. I, I went with you to, we talked about funerals at the outset. Well, one of the, the funerals you took, one of the, a funeral you took me to was kind of a, a high profile funeral after yes, the, was. remember after the, uh, Edwin, is it Edwin? Yes, McFadden? Edward McFadden, that's yeah. right. Who is Shanduk McFadder? And, and I had yeah. already been out um, on the beat with, with Shanduk McFadder yes. uh, because he's a credible messenger. And when you yeah. talk, about, I'm going to do the connecting tissue, but when you talk about man up, mm -hmm. what you're talking about for others to understand is that that is the model 
of credible messengers, much as we mm -hmm. are trying to, or the city is trying to get going here with strong arms of Jackson. In fact, mm -hmm. A.D. Mitchell of Man Up came down here to help get nice. that started. Nice, but, nice, but here's, nice. But, but here's, and I'm going to get back to the funeral in a second because I'm on uh -huh. but, but here's the thing. They can't get enough money because everybody wants to put it into police officers and misdemeanor jails. No, To no. lock people up for low-level crimes so that it keeps them off the street, you uh -huh, know? Uh -huh. And so, so the resources aren't there and there isn't right. a system, right? Uh -huh, uh -huh. Um, now the funeral, the reason I brought that up, because you, you and Kimberly were talking about retaliation. Uh -huh. And if there was anything I had to learn to, to fully, to get what's going on is, you know, I saw it at this funeral. Um, uh, I went with you to the funeral. Uh -huh. All these credible messengers from, and they're also called violence interrupters, folks. Yes, right. But from all of these, or in street workers, they're called a lot of things. Outreach workers, workers, yeah. yeah. <laughs> from all of these different organizations. And understand me when I say that, most of them have been in trouble. That's the point. Yeah. Most, that would, that's what makes them credible. That's what makes them credible. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They're all lined up outside this church where the funeral is going to be and as bodyguards. And so, we went through there, we go into the funeral. And one of the things that I kind of felt through all that is that they are there because one of the places that retaliations happen are at funerals. Well, funerals I learned right. from y'all, right? Mm -hmm. so, yep. so the credible messengers are there to guard and to keep and to stop those retaliations from going. Like you mentioned, cure violence, which is the yeah. model. It's for, for those who don't know. That's Bay, uh, the epidemiologist in Chicago mm -hmm. created it because they treat, they believe that violence that's is a virus. That's so right. Every, so one retaliation can lead to multiple uh, murders and mm -hmm. then they all retaliate. Kind of like mm -hmm. you were talking about that five people were affected yeah. in yeah. the murder of your son. It mm -hmm. may be more than that. You know, yeah, you never know. Yeah, so, yeah. so I'm trying to just kind of fill in that you so people know what they're hearing when you're talking right. about that, you know. Right. That so the point is there's only I mean, police have a role, you know. You mentioned working with Operation Ceasefire. It, by right. the way, Arisa was what's called the voice of pain mm -hmm. in these meetings with the, these mm -hmm. young men, and that means that a mother who's lost a son or right. a, a child talks about the pain and so that was that's what you're talking about there right yeah so, yeah so i guess my point in saying all of that is to kind of wrap it back around to this idea that when the fixation is only on saturation of police which is happening here right now like crazy nobody else is getting those resources that's right very few of those resources and we're not create and and in our community it across races, across political parties, whatever, for the most part, people just believe the answer to violence is, is police. police saturation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So my whole point is to bring it back to that and get you mm -hmm. to kind of respond to, you know, why that mm -hmm. isn't enough or maybe right. even backfires. And it, you know it's not enough because... 
Well, I know it's not enough because some of the young people that we have had at ceasefire, they have actually, we've had some of them that have been killed. So they went back, you know, so that those scare tactics, they didn't work, you know, and so that is not enough. You know, they do not relate to them like that, you know? And one of the things, and then I'm going to kick it back to Kimberly, uh, but okay. straight is the idea of scaring someone out of committing violence in all these different kinds of ways. Now, what you did with the voice of pain and, and ceasefire mm-hmm. does engage some scare tactics. And, and you know me, I have mixed feelings about ceasefire. Mm-hmm, I, uh, ceasefire mm-hmm. I think it's better than what they're doing here. With yeah. Saturation. yeah. It, yeah. You know, so I think they're because it's supposed to have a services model in it when it's done right, you know, it's just often not done right. But it seems like the whole, what everybody here thinks, or almost everybody thinks, well, is the thing that works is that police scare people into not committing crime. And that's very short-sighted. Right. It is. So talk a little bit about that. Why is that? Like, what are the motivations that are, be, you know, yeah, that I mean, stop? you know, some of them have even come to me and said, Miss, thank you for being here. It seems like you're the only one here that's not getting paid to tell us this, you know, and the scare tactic is it, it's a little extreme because they want to try to scare them while they think they're not scaring them. And so it's, we're all joining forces. We're all working together. The district attorney, the, you know, all of the people that's there, the United States attorney, everybody that's there, you know? And so, and Donna knows that it's gotten a lot of bad reviews. You know, it's gotten a lot of bad feedback from it because, you know, I don't think it works. I don't think it works. I'm not sure at all. Um, You know, you were talking about when you, went to the hospital and the entire church was there. For those of you all know, black church people are black church people are black church people if it had been in Mississippi. I mean, one time my my cousin was in the hospital and the doctor said, is anyone else coming? Because I can't talk to any more people. It's going to have to be a meeting. Um, that cultural sensitivity is so important across all communities. That's why you need a person from that community because I don't speak what happens at somebody else's trauma intersection. I don't know what that looks like. So if you would talk for a minute, we, we're talking about trauma and you know, there are sociologists, psychologists, psychiatrists that believe the diaspora that Black people's trauma are what causes a lot of our health conditions, even when we look like we're okay, because that collective trauma, that generational trauma is being passed down and passed down and passed down, even when we are healthy, wealthy, and wise, and we look, you know, super middle class. or, But can you talk about some of the things you've learned? You talked a little bit about things that people said to you when you were a kid, but can you talk about some of the layers, some streams that you've seen go th- as you've unpacked these layers with our young people? What are some things yeah. you're hearing from them? What are mm-hmm, you mm-hmm. you've learned from them? Yeah, the absence of parents, you know, and grandparents raising them, the stigmas that they're faced with, you know, especially our our black young men, the poverty the poverty state that a lot of families are in, you know, and a lot of them, you know, it's a new, this gen, gen, what is it? Gen exit and millennials, they're different, you know, and because things can happen. I think we're Gen X. Oh, we're Gen X, so so not them, but this (laughs) younger, younger generation, I'd be so confused with that. This younger, younger generation 
it's like because they know things can happen so fast and they can make it happen that fast that they are the least concerned about a lot of things that we have actually been concerned about, you know? Um, and so their layers of trauma is more, you know, just family things, family cycles, you know, that's a lot of their trauma, the generational uh, curses, the generational curses that they're really dealing with, you know, whether it's because they can make money. But the thing is, if you don't know how to save, if you're just trying to be the Joneses, you know, and all of those things, they come with that, you know, and that is what keep us in that poverty state that they're in. So, you know, those are the layers that we continue to talk to them about, you know, just getting out of there and just, you know, setting those goals and stuff for themselves. And when you talk to them about setting goals, about doing something differently, what are some of the things do they, when they say, when they respond, are they like, are they surprised? Have they never thought about it? What do you hear from them when you say, you know, you, if you say this thing will happen or if this or this thing will happen. It's different responses. You know, it's different responses. Like some of them, I remember the one that we did prior to this, when we were talking to them about what was their goals. And one said he wanted to save money. No, he wanted to make more money. So I said, okay, so how do you do that? I said, there's two ways that you could do that. Either you could save from what you already make. Maybe you're not, you know, positioning your money correctly, or you can get a better job, which may take you back to school to be able to do more. But I did not know that this boy did not even have a job. Wow. His job was in the street. Wow. And so, you know, they just think of, they think of quick things that they can do, mm. but it's, it's to them. It's just like, this is the reality of how life mm. has to be. You know, like it, this is what we have to do to survive. And mm -hmm. even thinking about the court case, the federal mm -hmm. court case, the young man's lawyer started off the trial with saying, I am defending so-and-so. He is from Marcy Projects where Jay-Z is from. You know Jay-Z, the rapper. And even Jay-Z talked about having a gun in the closet. And, you know, these young men face these plights every day. And so they have to have on their bulletproof vest. And they, like, this wow. is just the lifestyle that they have to have. And it, it was so disheartening to hear somebody saying that. Like, wow. we don't have a choice. And mm. so with us, it's putting the choices before them. Like you can never say that nobody gave you an option because one thing that I keep telling them is that you can pick your action, but you can't pick your punishment. Mm. You can't choose Ooh. your punishment. So choose your action wisely because the punishment, nah, that, that's out of your hands. You know, that is out of your hands. So, and then even after we do things like this with them, they have the outreach workers who actually stay on them and work with them, you know? So it's not just doing this one thing and then just leaving them for themselves. But it's, mm -hmm. you know, after you put the vision on the board, we actually have documents that mm -hmm. will help you write. Okay. So your vision was that you make more money. So your goal is to what, you know, to right. increase your, the money that you have, Bob, what, and why? So the, right. the packet says your goal, why? How right. do you want to, how can you do it? And like, it gives you clarity. Because mm -hmm. a lot of times when these things are just in your head, <laughs> you really can't, you know, think it out. You can't think it out. Well, we're, we're getting close to the end of the show here, but there were a couple of things I just wanted to put a fine point on. 
One is that, you know, I mentioned this, this fake funeral at the beginning of the show. And mm-hmm. I kind of feel like I need to explain that for people just a little bit, but I want to. Right. Cause as- Kimberly thought it was for insurance. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and, and I have the pictures for that, the whole thing, basically Arisa after Edwin McFadder's funeral, she ran out, she had all these credible messengers around us. And she said, okay, we, we got to go to this other funeral home. So I said, okay, you know, I just learned with a reason. I don't need to ask. It's like, just we're going somewhere <laughs> next. And so we get to this funeral home and what I watched Arisa, Credible Messengers, other people do is film a PSA of a young black man in a casket who was, mm-hmm. They were enacting, and she was the mother, supposedly, in the funeral. Now, imagine losing your son to gun violence and then playing a mother at a funeral all these years later. And I'm telling this story to say that what I observed in New York City around you and so many other people, especially the Credible Messengers, is just this this fire in your bellies to do anything that might stop gun violence, including mm-hmm. the PSA where a young man sits up in a casket. It was a bizarre commercial. I can tell yeah, you, but it, was. But, but it was intense. And that's kind of what I want to say to people. It's like, there's so many people out there who are doing a lot of different things and just trying things like operation ceasefire that you were doing that. All Mm -hmm. of your other work, your uh, meetings. I have a photo that I think might be about to appear on the screen that I found while you were talking there, Risa. This is, Mm -hmm. if it's popping up, this is, remember this? This Oh, I see it. Yes, 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 yes. Tell them real quick what that was. Tell them. I think that was a support session, yeah. That was. And you took me and all of these women here had lost either, they were mostly mothers. I think there there was a sister or two had lost someone to gun violence. Mm-hmm. And so this was a support session and these quilts, uh, there were these quilts that were commemorating violence and their children. And so I think the thing that I want to bring this back to is this idea that we have mothers and families right here in Jackson right now who are being blamed for the gun violence. Wow. Rather than being helped. Right. And right. so I think my last question for you, kind of as we as we start to take this out, is what would you say to them and mm-hmm. and and what would be the first step or two to them starting to get organized in some way so that they can have these kinds of support groups themselves? Yeah. Um, for them to come together, mm-hmm. you know, come together for the sole purpose of starting to attain their healing. Other things may come along as far as work and and things for them to do in the community and things of that nature, but their sole purpose should be for their healing because they can't go out and save the community if they're not healed or at least on the road to it. And then going out will help them on that road. You know, my initial purpose for the support sessions was that, you know, and still is that, you know, to have a safe space. For people to come to without stigmas, with uh, whether your child was in a gang, whether it was intentional, mm-hmm. whether, you know, it wasn't intentional, whatever it was, but just to come together as mothers or family members, you know, that has lost a loved one in that manner. 
Well, and that was one of the things that struck me the most attending those sessions with you was your messaging that it doesn't matter why you lost exactly. your, your child. It, mm -hmm. you let go of the guilt, mm -hmm. you know, let go of the stigmas and all of those other things uh, and heal. That's and, right. And I would, I watched you in action for hours and I I'm blessed that you allowed me to good, follow good. you around to do that. But, but because, because to observe that and how, and it, it changed, it really affects your way of thinking. So, you know, one of the things that I think one of our messages that we try <laughs> to get out there through our reporting in this community mm -hmm. is that there are different ways to look at violence and to prevent it rather than this blaming of mothers for not doing enough or mothers yeah, work yeah. their jobs, you know, who, yeah. who aren't doing enough and trying to just sweep all the young men into jail. You know, that's right. That's you know, right. There are other ways to do it. Some can yeah. be helped, you know, some that's can right. be helped, you know, and then right. the others that can't be jail is there for a reason. That's right. That's you right. know, so yeah, it's, it's no prison. blame game. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. Cause here that's they'll right. keep them in jail for, years at a time without a trial. So that's, wow. Uh, yeah, it's bad. It's bad. Wow. wow. But so what I want to say to everybody, we could, we could go on, uh, you know, we, we, <laughs> we, could, we could talk for days and I'm coming mm -hmm. to New York city soon, by the way. So Good. we're going to get out. To see you again, Donna. I know, I know. I miss yes. you so much, but we're yes, going to get out. Here. I love you to death. I can't wait. To I get love back. you too, dear. I can't wait. But, but what, I think the, the message here is, I think, to think wider, you know, and deeper mm -hmm. than we're doing. And I also want to, as soon as we feel like it's safe enough, I still want to get you down here. I'd love you to meet with some of the mothers. I would love people it. People here. Yes. Yeah. Just talk to them. It. And, and, you know, maybe we can, we can get some of that Arisa energy going on down <laughs> here, you know, cause there's plenty to go around y'all. Yes, <laughs> yes, it is. It is. I'm passionate about my work and about what you. I'm doing. Yes. I told Absolutely. Kimberly ahead of time that you're a force of nature that you, you always remind me of Brooklyn meets the South. Coming, coming Brooklyn meets together. the South, right, right. That's right. That would know? be I. That I would be me. <laughs> so say, give us one last parting comment. Oh. I don't know. I just, um, I don't know. I don't know. That's I don't okay. know. I can't, okay. I can't wait to get to Jackson. I know. That's I can't I wait think. to get you to Jackson. I can't wait to get there. We're going to have big vision boards about, yes. <laughs> about pre yes. crime prevention and the system in Jackson. That's for that's sure. right. That's right. Um, so I think that's our show tonight. I really appreciate you guys being here. Thank you so much. Kimberly is always is a fabulous co-host. And I can't wait to see you soon, Arisa. Same here. Good night. Same Good night. here. Here's to more adventures. Good night. Okay. Everybody. Thank you. MFP Live is a production of the Mississippi Free Press, reader-supported solutions journalism for the Magnolia State. You'll find it at mfp.ms. MFP live streams most Thursdays on the MFP's Facebook and YouTube pages where you can listen live and participate in the show by commenting. The MFP Live podcast is an edited version of the live show. The hosts of MFP Live are MFP co-founders Donna Ladd and Kimberly Griffin. This episode of MFP Live was produced by Todd Stauffer. The podcast was produced by Courtney Munkier and it's available on popular listening apps and platforms. Learn more at mfp.ms slash live.